Hello and welcome to the IFSEC Insider Security in Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. Welcome to another episode of the IFSEC Insider podcast with your host, James Moore. In today's discussion, we get into the extremes of security risk and threat management, where there's a backdrop of an ongoing war. We are lucky enough to hear from Risto Hatija, Chief Executive Officer of Risk and Security Consultancy Century Global Group. Risto is based in Odessa, Ukraine, which the very night before he spoke to us had been hit by several missile strikes from Russia. As someone who has been in Ukraine since 2005, Risto speaks passionately about the situation he and his compatriots face, as February the 24th, 2022 became a significant turning point in all of their lives. We explore the personal impact of this a little later in the episode, but the crux of our discussion really centers around delivering security and risk management services during this period of such dramatic upheaval. Risto talks us through what those first days were like as he and his fellow security professionals tried to support and advise clients and businesses and people on evacuation procedures and the routes that they could take and the myriad risks involved. He then goes on to explain how the perception of risk has developed over the course of the war and how levels of proportionality have changed as businesses try to continue operating as usual amidst a backdrop of significant uncertainty. Resilience is the key word, not just from a security perspective, but also from the people of Ukraine, it seems. We must also say a huge thanks to Peter French at SSR Personnel for the introduction via connections made through ASIS International. Risto was a founding member of the ASIS, otherwise known as ASIS, Ukraine chapter, which has since grown to over 100 members, and he speaks highly of the connections made, as well as training and professional development opportunities the Global Security Association provides. But look, that's that's enough for me uh, for this introduction. I'm going to keep this one short. So let's get into the interview as Risto begins by explaining his background in the sector and what his role at Century Global involves now. Yes, I've um, got over 40 years experience in the security industry. I started out as a police officer in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and uh, have traveled and worked around the world since then um, in Australia and in uh, Latin America. And in 2005, I ended up in Ukraine and have basically stayed here since then. My role has encompassed pretty well everything from being an employee uh, as a security manager, executive director of, as, of security for financial institutions, for uh, hotels, and uh, also as a consultant for large consulting firms. And I've worked with governments, uh, different agencies of governments, police, military, uh, jails, uh, health uh, and those kinds of agencies as well as with pretty well the whole range of corporate uh, and business environment uh, including things as far as um, you know uh, funeral homes kind of thing relating to security investigative issues around the world so i have a fairly broad range of experience most of that uh, is on the service provision side now since the last 20 30 years i've been working in 25 years i've been working as a service provider and a consultant. I've been in Ukraine now since, as I said, 2005, so quite a while. 
Although in between, I was also living in Finland for a while, but I now live in and have for the last eight years been living in Odessa permanently uh, in Ukraine and uh, working here in the security sector. I was involved uh, together with um, some of the local people in establishing the ACES chapter here in Ukraine in 2018. We started out with 14 members and in fact today is the anniversary of the establishment uh, of the chapter and now we have over 100, 110 members. Uh, we've had some phenomenal growth in membership and that relates to the fact that Ukraine and Ukrainians are very much wanting to align themselves more with uh, Western ways of thinking, Western laws, uh, Western methods than with um, any of the Eastern traditional ones that have been placed until now. Why did you feel the need to set that, that chapter up? I'm guessing you were involved in it maybe in, in, in other countries beforehand and or knew of it and saw the support that it could offer the, the Ukrainian security sector, I suppose. Absolutely. I was um, uh, in ACES. I was actually one of the uh, charter members establishing ACES in, in Sydney, Australia in 1992. I've been a uh, regional vice president. I've worked on the uh, in the Nordics. Um, I worked on the ACES board from the Finnish chapter. Obviously, I understand and know uh, the ability of ACES to provide fellowship between different international security managers, and there's a lot of contribution that can be provided to Ukrainian security, which is well behind the, shall we say, the, the curve in terms of internationally accepted standards, international norms and uh, ACES norms and standards as well for that matter. And there's a great deal of interest in learning here. People want to learn uh, new things, new ways of doing things. Security is a very important part of life here in Ukraine and for corporates, um, you know, most of the security managers are basically guard managers or they're in the cybersecurity area, which is uh, separate. So the convergence of physical and, and cybersecurity has not really started to gain speed here. And of course, it's been interrupted now by COVID and now with the war. But that's the kind of thing that ACES can offer to people here is the training, the, 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 the resources, the, the access to different people, to the access to things like ACES's uh, shows and seminars and so on. So I saw it as a valuable part for assisting Ukrainian security and the Ukrainian security industry to grow and to mature uh, into what it can be, what I can see because of the level of talent that we have here. Absolutely. And, and obviously with, with that grows, you know, a security community grows in, in, in Ukraine, I suppose. And that's that's what those associations such as ACES are, are really sort of valuable for. With that security community now, I guess um, you can speak from a quite a, you know a wider perspective of of how the security and, uh, services you provide and how the industry has maybe changed in the last eighteen months. I mean, you mentioned you you're based in Odessa, and and I believe that the night uh, before we're, we're talking today, there were some missiles that came your way. You know, this must have changed things from the security provisions perspective and 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 dealing with corporates and and what their risk the, you know the risk and the threat management kind of level is what what's your perspective on that how's it changed in the ukraine well i think february 24th in 2022 was an absolute turning point in certainly in my life and certainly in the lives of everybody here in ukraine uh when you know 420 in the morning uh, we were hit by the first missiles fired by the russians Proceeding that, um, you know, the security work that we were doing here was pretty standard risk management, travel, um, journey management, um, transporting people from um, Kiev airport or other airports to uh, their places of work, 
prior to that also, we had been doing a lot of evacuation planning with a lot of corporates and discussing their evacuation plans. And we had also spent a lot of time trying to educate our customers that you need to not only have an evacuation plan, you need to practice it and you need to have resources allocated so that if and when the flag goes up, that you can actually get somebody to do the things that your evacuation plan calls for. So, you know, for instance, if you don't have any resources allocated and you're the last man in an area trying to get out, how are you going to get the vehicles? How are you going to move from one place to another? There are many international um, evacuation companies that offer services for evacuation, but generally speaking, they fly into a particular location and pick up the people that need to be evacuated and then fly out. Now, that works if the airspace is open. But as we learned in this situation, the airspace was closed on the, I believe, the 20th of, uh, or the 21st, the Monday of the week that the attack occurred on Thursday morning. So there was no place that any aircraft could fly to pick anybody up. Now, if you're in Kharkiv, uh, which is the closest border is 800 kilometers from Kharkiv, and the Russian border is 60 kilometers from Kharkiv, you've got the zone that goes around the northern and eastern side of, and then also to the south because of Crimea being occupied um, by the Russians. You have this entire area of around 2,000 kilometers roughly that forms the front line. Now, if you're anywhere near about 50 or 60 kilometers of that front line, you're at big risk because we didn't know where the attack was going to come from. There's a lot of um, dis discussion about, is it going to be an area level type of thing, like something in the Donbass area, which would be the eastern part of the country. Uh, and But no one foresaw that it was, an, you know, basically a, the entire front was going to be used as, a, as the front to attack. Because, uh, you know, we just couldn't believe that they would attack with the number of people that they had because it wasn't sufficient in anybody. And I'm not a military specialist, but every military specialist I spoke to said that, you know, 275,000 troops is not possible to attack the way an entire front, the, the size of, uh, of Ukraine. But in any case, they did. And of course, as an example, in Kharkiv, we have uh, customers there. We were there on Tuesday and we're able to talk the customers into evacuating right that day. We said to them, basically, you have to leave now. Now you have to leave. And one, in fact, one of the gentlemen that was there said to me, he says, look, and I, need, have, I have some things I need to do. I'll leave in a week. And I said, in a week, I can't guarantee you can get out. And now he's very thankful because he couldn't have gotten out in a week because uh, the war was so hot there, uh, especially in those first few months, that he would have had to stay there until or taken some government arranged trains that would leave which was also absolutely chaotic and that wasn't happening right away either so so you know you have to have these things in place and have to leave and we got calls from people that were basically behind the front lines they couldn't leave it was impossible i'm sorry we can't do anything for you you know we can't get any people to you to get and we don't even have vehicles you have to get vehicles from outside to outside of the country to bring them out so um, some of those people their their staff ukrainian staff and uh, expats uh, generally the expats had left but not always had to come out via Russia and um, the, all of the problems that that created because it's not a simple uh, situation uh, to do that. So evacuation was a big thing right at the beginning of the hot war part of this uh, history with Russia. And how's that evolved over, you know, since, since that point? I mean, obviously the evacuation part would have been the, the priority and I can only imagine that first 24, 48, 72 hours would have been calls from, from all over the place. But 
how's that evolved now as as it's kind of gone on and developed those who have been evacuated have left i just want to emphasize too that the if you look at the map of ukraine and you understand the russian border with ukraine the evacuation requirements for a place like Kharkiv within 60 kilometers of uh, the Russian border are totally different than those for Lviv, which is way out in the west, you know, about 800 kilometers away. What we found was that once this war started, everybody pushed the panic button, everybody rushed for the exits, uh, you know, especially Western companies. And uh, that created a bottleneck for everybody else trying to get out from the east, where it was most important to get out as, as opposed to from the west, where it was relatively safe at the time. Over time, people left and then started coming back. Because often when you look at the risks of countries that are at war or the countries that are, you know, problem areas, and this is one of the things that we always look at with our customers, you can't look at the entire country as a whole as being high risk. Because each because it's big areas. We're talking about some area that has something happening and other large areas where there's nothing really happening or something else is happening that may not be as high, which is not as high risk as in other places. For instance, if you're within 40 kilometers, 30 to 60 kilometers of the the front line, uh, the Russians tend to fire artillery weapons indiscriminately at anything that they can fire at, okay? But if you're, you know, over 120, we're here in Odessa, we're 150 kilometers from the nearest front line. They don't have the types of weapons in artillery that are able to reach us. So we get rockets, we get the Shahid drones that they've obtained from Iran. That's what we get. But there are smaller numbers of those, and they're more easily dealt with by our anti-aircraft weapons that do a fantastic job, by the way, in, in shooting down a majority of anything that comes our way. So the, the the risks are different in that situation. So it's proportionate, I suppose. You've got to take that it's into account. It's balanced. And you have to look at, okay, I have a business that has a factory, and let's say as an example, in Lviv. Can I send people back? Yes. You have to have certain things in place. You have to have a risk manager who understands what's going on. You have to have uh, um, all these different um, uh, plans in place. And you have to practice them, and you have to be able to work with them. And the key of this, all of it, all of this, are the people that you send and the people that you use locally to do the assessments, to make the relationships that are necessary in order to achieve whatever is required to be achieved. And as a matter of fact, we just had a seminar with Peter French from SSR personnel in Kiev um, about a week ago, two weeks ago. And one of the reasons um, SSR personnel and, and we're working together with them at Centric Global, they're here, is we need we look at looking for those talented individuals who can do it, uh, who can provide the services. What we have in Ukraine is a very difficult situation for local security managers. And this is because in Ukraine, local security managers and local people have criminal responsibility for their decisions that's much more pronounced than in the West. Uh, and if you make a decision that's wrong and people get killed, you can go to jail personally for that. And that's not a mitigatable uh, situation. It's something that does happen. And um, uh, so often when Western companies come out here to hire people, they don't understand the level of responsibility, personal responsibility that our people have. In fact, I looked at one particular job advertisement, which really required university graduates, required that the person be in charge of five to seven different sites across Ukraine as a security manager, 
may give all the advice that's necessary, liaison with foreign embassies and liaison with local enforcement and local uh, agencies that are necessary, military liaison, all that which is now required, of course. And for all of this, the salary level was ridiculous. You can't look at the average wage in Ukraine and extrapolate out to a security manager's position. And this is what I'm trying to work together with SSR personnel to to get people to, you know, to get corporates to understand that you can hire good people, but you can't hire them for peanut money. It's just not something that in a wartime scenario works in any country, let alone here. Yeah. Has this put a new perspective on the importance of security and risk management from outside the security industry? I mean, is, is that message now trying to get across to other Western companies who have bases in Ukraine is this is how important security is. This is why risk management and threat management is so important. It is, and ACES plays a great part in that because um, the members have, have learned new tools to communicate with their management. It's still very infancy, at infant stages, particularly for Ukrainian companies, but definitely foreign companies understand the requirement that uh, they need to have somebody here locally who understands what's going on because uh, it's it's not... It's not possible to bring somebody uh, without any support locally uh, in who can even conceptualize what's actually happening here. And this ability to understand uh, the culture, understand the, actually the, what this war is all about, which is basically uh, a war of annihilation by, uh, by Russians trying to uh, take over Ukraine and wipe out um, the entire country and its culture. That takes some adjustment from Western companies to understand that. You know, it's 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 a mindset that is not been around in the West probably ever, except for some parts of some countries that um, have experienced it in the past, but not certainly not recently, certainly not in our living memory. And this is the thing that you know to be able to understand how 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 things are here and where. And going back to what I was saying to you earlier about recognizing what threats exist there, what are real threats, and what are not real threats it requires this local knowledge. And and what the ACES brings and what, uh, you know, Western security managers and organizations like IFSEC as well can bring is this methodology on how to do this in a way that it can be communicated to Western corporates in the way that they're used to, because that's the thing that lacks here at the moment. And do you have any advice on that? Is there, is there how, how do you think it's training. communicators? Training. Training, this is, this is, and this is exactly what I was, um, uh, alluding to that about um, uh, ACES having appropriate courses about um, when Peter came over, we had this seminar about different things in terms of of, uh, of licensing issues, for instance. We, we are starting some discussions about licensing of security officers, which doesn't exist here, the regime. Uh, we're talking about training programs, but training is the critical thing that's required here now. The fact is that there is a hunger for training from the people who work here in the security industry. You know, until the war started, all of the equipment that the fire department had here were basically old Soviet vehicles and old Soviet equipment. Now I see, you know, state-of-the-art equipment in Odessa that that have been provided by Germany, provided some uh, firefighting equipment and trucks and things like that, you know, which they were nowhere to be seen two years ago. Yeah, and I, I believe that companies like the FIA in the hit based in the UK have, yeah. have been working yes, to support yes, the fire industry in, in Ukraine. Um, Absolutely. Again, leads me on to my next question, which is, what's the support been like from the global security community, I suppose, to 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 their fellow ACES chapter members, but but also just as a whole? It's been phenomenal. You know, this is this is a war that touches everybody. 
Um, it's something that uh, every uh, every person I speak to anywhere I go, and I do spend time um, speaking to different people and talking about the war, talking about Ukraine and uh, making sure that uh, the support doesn't wane because that's our biggest problem these days is that, um, you know, the attention span of the average person isn't very very long and this is not a television war. This is not a, a war where you have the charge of the Light Brigade, which, by the way, ended up not that well in, in Crimea back when it occurred. Um, this is not that kind of war. This is actually a world, it can be compared to World War II. Um, the, in fact, the usage of, uh, of uh, ammunition surpasses that of what was used in the entire, in one, one, I can't remember, one month, we've used more ammunition than was used in one year in, in World War II. Uh, and, um, you know, artillery ammunition. So there's a lot of things that are going on here that, um, that uh, require ongoing support. Um, we, you know, we're everybody here is very thankful for the support because without that we wouldn't be we'd be fighting a partisan war here under Russian occupation, which would be a completely different thing. And Russia would be fighting in Europe, in Poland, in in, in Baltics against NATO because Russia would be greatly bolstered by bringing in the Ukrainian natural resources and uh, and and people uh, because of course they would that's who they would use to fight the West. But, so it's it's very important. It's everybody's war. It's 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 something that um, uh, needs to be supported by everybody who, who loves to live in freedom. That's why the support has been phenomenal. We, we're really thankful for it. Individual people who have supported, for instance, uh, in in I represent an organization called Black Sea Will Smile in in from the U.S. or sorry from Canada, and uh, they've provided phenomenal support in terms of obtaining. Uh, generators when there was the attacks last year on the infrastructure, the critical infrastructure, electrical infrastructure. Sometimes some, the longest time we were out without power was three days. We organized generators, transported those generators uh, to to the needy. The Association of European Investigators uh, stepped up to the plate, also made significant donations to purchase uh, generators from outside of uh, Ukraine and have them brought into Ukraine and we were involved with that as well. So distributing those. So, so, you know, the, the, those kinds of organizations and individual people, ACES, of course, you know, full support from ACES, from the European uh, uh, management team and from uh, individual members from across, across Europe, especially from Eastern European members. You know, what do you need? What, what can we do? What can, how can we help you? And you know, my message for that is don't stop. We still, this is not over yet. We need to take it to the end. From what I've learned over the past three or four years, just from writing about the security industry and um, talking to people, is is how how tight knit it is and how global it is. It's you know yes. these, these companies are working across you know transnational borders and all this kind of stuff, and, and it's and it's really um, encouraging to to hear that it has been yes. it has been supportive. From a security perspective, what's the biggest takeaway that for, for you over the last sort of eighteen months or so? The biggest takeaway is that you can never be too prepared for anything. We deal with, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld said, the, un the known unknowns, or is it the unknown unknowns? Unknown unknowns, that's what he said. And a lot of security work is about unknown unknowns. You know, we can deal with, we can manage the, one, the, the risks and the threats that we know. It's the ones that we don't know about that uh, cause us problems. How to plan for that? How do we plan for eventualities that hopefully never come about, but if they do come about, that we have some way of dealing with them. We're not just reacting to the circumstances. You've got to get ahead of that 
bold, you know, uh, to try to get. Of course, in a war situation, civilian security organizations aren't fighting the war, but it will have impact on you. You know, your staff will get called up and they'll have to go to the war. So you've got staff issues. You've got how do you deal with that? You know, planning issues in terms of, uh, again, as I was saying, different kinds of plans that are required uh, to be made. You've got those ex- those those um, uh, contingency plans. You've got business continuity plans. You know, do people still do these business continuity plans that um, uh, there was there's a big push for it some years ago? And um, it seems to me that there's a lot less talk about it now than, than there was before. Perhaps they're in place, but who practices them? You know, do you practice them? And that those are the kinds of things that need to be done. You need to be aware that uh, even tabletop exercises are important in these kinds of situations so that you have some kind of plan in place to to deal with um uh, situations that you can't anticipate. That's the key issue is what is that thing? You know, I've been in the industry for over 40 years. I never, ever expected that I'd be living through a full-scale war in my lifetime. And yet here we are dealing with it and we're working through it. And one of the big things is that we need to anticipate also what happens after the war is over when we are victorious. You know, the re- troops returning from the front, the people coming back home, you know, it presents all kinds of security challenges as well. And again, many what that are not known. You know, you can anticipate some, you can, but you can't anticipate them all. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that you need to be thinking about and planning for now, and that's what we're doing. Absolutely. And and just finally, as a security professional, you're providing all these services, but personally, how, you know, how have you been impacted by this? You know, is I can only imagine that there must be a um, challenge for lots of people in, in terms of mental health and, um, how they're dealing with this is, you know, how, how have you dealt with this personally? Well, nothing prepares you for this. That's the one thing that um, I must say. Um, you know, I've been through a lot of things, um, you know, when I was in the police, we were through a lot of different kinds of experiences, including firearms issues. Uh, I've been through a lot in my life in general, but nothing prepares you for that first missile. And the sound and the the impact, the terrifying impact that just shakes everything. And then ongoing ones that come after that. And and even now, you know, we have these attacks on a regular basis here. And just as, as you mentioned last night, we had one, our counterbat, our, our anti-missile forces fired at least seven from somewhere around where we are and shot down. We could see the, the, the fireworks out of, above the sea um, as they were being shot down. The, the drones and the incoming missiles were being shot down. Even now, it's something that, you know, it shakes you to the core. It, it basically is something that you, you you have to deal with. But having said that, Ukrainians specifically and human beings in general are very resilient. I'm surprised at the resilience that people exhibit. Of course, there are people that will have mental health issues and will have PSTD and all the other stress-related things um, that come out of it. Then, you know, um, I... I, and that those are things that are going to have to be dealt with um, and, and treated at, uh, for everybody. Personally, I can cope with that. I've learned to cope with different kinds of things. It's not easy, but it, it can be done. You just you you need to understand that it's not personal. It's not a personal situation where you're personally under fire for you uh, because of who you are, but uh, you're part of this group. Some people have asked me why I stay here, and my answer is that this is my home. I, you know, I'm not going to leave my home just because of uh, something like this going on. It's not um, it's not who I am, and I'm here to do what I need to do to to keep my home safe and keep uh, 
this country safe. It's one of the more free countries I've ever lived in, uh, contrary to popular belief. But uh, it is a very free country and you can do a lot of things here that you couldn't do in a lot of other places. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a very positive way. Probably one of the biggest problems is sleep deprivation because all the attacks generally come at night. And if you're unlucky enough to live next to an air raid siren, you'll never sleep uh, because they're constantly going off. You know, you get a five minute warning uh, on the air raid siren, which actually goes off for five minutes to warn you of the uh, air raid beginning. And then you get a shorter one for when it ends. But so you're always awake. And then, of course, you get up and, you know, and then trying to get back to sleep is challenging, depending on circumstances. And you've got to go to work the next day or to case of kids go to school. If you have kids, you always take them down to, you know, the bomb shelters. Us older people have a look at the assess, you assess the situation, decide whether we go to the bomb shelter or whether we do the secondary, which is a rule uh, of two of two walls between you and the outside, or just do nothing, uh, depending on the circumstances of the attack and whether you are a threat in your area or not, which we can actually analyze. So those are the, you know, the biggest things that I personally have experienced as challenging, but it's not the end of the world, then it won't be. What a privilege it was to speak to Risto Hartija and hear from what it is like working as a security and risk professional in such a challenging environment. I know many security professionals, which likely includes many of you listening, have military, police or counter-terror backgrounds and experience. You will therefore have a far better idea of what this situation is like compared to me. But what impressed me most is the resilience that Risto demonstrates and how that extends to the businesses and people of Ukraine as well. It's really encouraging to hear that both the security and fire sectors have provided ongoing support, whether tangible or intangible, throughout the conflict. And I, I think this truly demonstrates the value that so many in the sector, such as Risto, place on professional association bodies and the support they provide. There are several out there to choose from, whether it be ASIS, the Security Institute, IFPO, there's numerous others and these are just naming a few. But as we've heard from several other guests on the podcast, those who join them rarely leave. The networking opportunities, the development and training opportunities that they offer and provide really are valued by many in the sector. As always, thank you for listening. Please do like, share and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed this episode and welcome to any new listeners out there. We're now 16 episodes in, so there's plenty of back catalogues to have a listen to when you get a chance. But that is all from us on this episode of the Security in Focus podcast. This has been a podcast from IFSEC Insider. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media platforms you're on and get yourself signed up to our weekly security newsletters to keep up with all the latest in the industry. Thank you for listening and see you next time.